We turn our attention now to the word of the Lord as it comes to us from Exodus in the Ten Commandments. It's just so difficult to keep God first in our lives that these first two commandments instruct us how to avoid going off the track. The text this morning is simply the second commandment from Exodus 20, verse 4. Listen for God's word for you. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you join me in prayer? Gracious God, your word comes through the corridors of time and echoes of things we have heard and known and yet do not fully understand. So now speak to us as only a living God can and quiet within us any voice but your own. For we pray in the name and for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, the past couple weeks, Greece has been in the news. There was once a woman who fell in love with a travel poster. A story told by John Killinger in his little book, To My People with Love. The Ten Commandments for Today was a dramatic photograph showing the whitewashed buildings and Byzantine domes of the Greek island of Santorini. And behind them were the shining blue sea. She asked the travel agent for a copy of the poster and she took it home. She put it in her breakfast nook so that every morning when she arose she could see that beautiful scenery. And soon she began to dream of going to the Greek islands and to see this fabled view for herself. Each time she received a paycheck, she put a little away towards the realization of her dream vacation. Eventually the day came when finally she flew off to Athens on the first leg of her big journey. Because the tour included several days in Athens, she dutifully made the rounds of sights, but she confessed to one of the other ladies on the trip that she wasn't very much interested in what she was seeing, for she had really come for one purpose, to see that beautiful scene in Santorini that had been captured in the travel poster. The tour then left Athens, traveled by steamer to one of the other ancient islands with its twisting and narrow streets, its unforgettable harbor, its picturesque windmills, its whitewashed buildings and Byzantine domes. And most of the rest of the people on the tour oohed and awed at the glorious sights. Some even began to write poetry the evening that they stood on the hill and watched the sun set like some kind of a fiery red wafer into the mauve and the golden sea. 
But the woman was unyielding. She had come to see the houses and the domes of Santorini. The tour then transported into a little island. They stayed on the leeward side of that island in a hotel overlooking the beautiful bay where fishermen brought in their catches every evening just before dinner. During the daytime, many of the party enjoyed the beach. Others swam in the luminously clear waters, marveled at the beauty of their surroundings, but this woman rarely left her hotel room. She was dreaming of a special view in Santorini. And finally, the tour arrived at Santorini. The ship sailed to the rim of that enormous volcano which is upon which the city is perched. It was almost dusk. The sky over the sea looked like this great bank of embers slowly fading into the night. Many people said it was the most beautiful sight they'd ever seen. But the woman rode silently up the hill to the hotel, clutching her dream of the view on that poster. Tomorrow morning, when the sun rises, she said to herself, I'll see it. She would only have a few hours in the city, but it was enough, and it would be worth it. She would stand on the parapet of the city, and she would look down across those gorgeous housetops and the domes pictured in her poster. Her heart was pounding faster, and she wasn't sure she would be able to sleep. But during the night, a storm off the coast of southern Italy moved into the Aegean Sea, and it brought cooler temperatures with it. And as that cold air met the warm seawater, thick vapors arose and spread this murky blanket over everything. And when the woman awoke, she rushed to her balcony to look out over the view she had longed to see, and everything was shrouded in fog. She could barely see the buildings below her hotel. And later in the day, her heart heavy with disappointment as they sailed to Crete, where they would catch a plane home. She had missed everything. All the beauty, the grandeur of that entire civilization by focusing exclusively on one image. John Killinger concludes, maybe that is why we're warned away from creating an image of God. Even the finest image. Because we might just fix our sights on it and miss everything else. This prohibition of making idols, of trying somehow to own God, is directed towards religious people. The first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me, is directed towards those who tend to ignore God, who tend to act as if God doesn't exist at all. But the second commandment is directed towards those of us who believe, but we're inclined to think that we possess God, that we have some special right to God's power and God's benefits. Sometimes religious people just have a way of thinking that God belongs to them. We may not actually make graven images of God, but we do reduce God in our minds 
to images that are just as small and limited as a graven image. And when it all comes down to it, in ancient times and today, we do not own God. The second commandment, as one commentator takes it to mean, says that simply, not only you shall not make an idol for yourself, but you shall not make an idol of yourself. It's dangerous to make yourself into the top authority in your own life. As though you have enough power to control outside events in your life, that you have the power to control people. It may be gratifying to get to a place in life where you actually have some control over others, whether it's employees or spouses or children, but ultimately it can lead to a great kind of loneliness in life. I'm sure many of you remember Howard Hughes. He was an expert at manipulating people and exerting power. But he died a lonely old man, surrounded only by hired servants and favor seekers, wondering why so few people loved him. Now, there's nothing wrong with success, but there's a something wrong with the way we single-mindedly chase power in a way that shuts me off from other people. That desire for power may put me in a position where the only thing worse than losing is actually winning. So what difference does it make if God has all the power there is but the Lord has no real authority in your life. Power and authority are not necessarily the same thing. Parents feel that. Judges feel that. Leaders feel that. The Pope feels that. Many people who exercise power have no authority. Richard Nixon had the power of the presidency right up to the moment he resigned. But after the public found out about his role in Watergate, he had no authority. My grandfather had power, but my grandmother had authority. <laughs> I remember what my grandmother used to say, and I wanted to do it. I have no remembrance of what my grandfather used to say, except that I had to do it. Helps me understand the subtle difference between power and authority in our lives. And wrestling with authority in our lives has spiritual implications. So here are these fierce and militant ex-slaves struggling at the foot of Mount Sinai. They were restless. They were hot and ill-tempered. They were unorganized, insecure, and frustrated. Moses had gotten them out of Egypt and out from under Pharaoh's heel. 
But nobody really likes to feel indebted to someone else for their independence. And none of them had actually seen this God that Moses talked about. And Moses had once again gone off to the top of the mountain to talk with his God, and they hadn't seen him for a month. So suddenly they all got sort of fed up with this God business, and they went to Aaron, the brother of Moses, and they said, Make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, we don't even know what's become of him. That wasn't an ignorant or an unsophisticated or an irreligious request. These people simply wanted a reasonable authority in their lives, not a God they couldn't control and didn't know how to access. They wanted an authority that was cut down to a manageable size. Who wants an authority in life that keeps making huge demands on my time and my thoughts, on my energy and on my behavior? Always poking holes in my favorite ideas and assumptions about life. I'd much rather have an authority that lets me alone until I want it. I want an authority like that, that likes what I like and hates what I hate. And an authority that depends upon me for protection against all the sinister onslaughts of those who conspire against it. In fact, an authority that owes me for that protection So these children at Mount Sinai conclude that if God will not make His will clear and painless and fun, then we'll simply leave this God behind and we'll fashion one to our own liking. So the people brought their gold and they melted it down and they made a golden calf, a god they could control. I imagine it probably looked like that big bull that sits out on Wall Street. Now, I'm not sure that the Old Testament writers knew anything about American slang. But in this attempt to tell me how people once tried to make God into something they could control... The writers said that people simply ended up with a lot of bull. A golden bull, but a lot of bull. And I seldom call my attempts to do the same thing a lot of bull. But that's pretty much what it is. And these commandments are a warning against the danger of trying to tame or domesticate God, the ultimate authority in life. And there's something else that I think idolatry means in this, trying to control or manipulate God to get what I want. 
God is just God. We can't ignore God, the first commandment. And we can't control God either, the second commandment. The New Testament keeps pointing me to Jesus and saying, if you want to know how God exercises authority in human affairs, here, take a look at Jesus. And in reading the story of Jesus, I discover Jesus was not powerful in the sense that Pilate and Herod were powerful, but he had authority in life. And he invites me to be human and to be honest with God like he was. And Jesus just kind of has a way of letting me know that it's him. He's the one who restores my lost sense of humor. He never seemed to get down, though he never owned much. His own family began to think he was crazy. His friends turned on him. But people who had lost hope began to hear and see in Jesus a sane new authority in a crazy world. Because Jesus had a way of telling them that even at their worst, when they admitted their need, they stood closer to God than lots of people who make a big deal out of their religion. And the Bible just has this way of saying, Jeff, take a look. God is like that. The authority of God works like that, just like Jesus did. They couldn't control him. He wouldn't play by their rules. He wouldn't back down. So they had to get rid of him. But God's authority in human life was born in Jesus Christ in that stable and went to a cross and defeated death. So it's now available. That authority is now available for you and for me and for all people everywhere. I have to be careful of my tendency to want to domesticate the living God and to set myself up as the authority for my own life, making an idol of myself. If my God is too small and I have the wrong image of God in my mind, I will miss out on the beauty and the majesty of the real and the living God. And I'll miss out on the mystery of life itself, living by faith and with hope and in love. So the question to all of us this morning is, who has the authority in your life? Thanks be to God. In Jesus Christ, we have an authority in our life who 
holds us and keeps us by God's grace. Amen.